The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The Song of Songs. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. It's a little ironic that we have the king, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, telling us about marital love. And because it comes from him, and because it's filled with, honestly, quite erotic imagery, throughout history, the church has principally wanted to read this book allegorically. This can't be about real sexuality, about real sexual desire from a man to a woman, from a woman to a man. Because that's private stuff. Because we just don't talk about that stuff. And because of that, it must not be about human relationship. It must have more to do with God and His people. I mean, as we look at all of Scripture, we can see God seeking to woo Israel to Himself. And Israel, in the name of a harlot, going her own way. So we've got, I mean, from Exodus 32, the first time we see in Scripture the language being used of Israel running from God at the golden calf episode like a fornicator. And then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God intruding into space and time and setting His affection on Israel. We see in the book of Hosea where the prophet is embodying in and of himself the story of Israel. He is the one entering in who's taking a bride who is unfaithful and then who remains unfaithful. And that's Israel. God is the husband. Israel is the bride. And then we come to Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's a comparison here. There's a parable here. But we don't even want to see it as a parable. Most of the time in the church, this has just been viewed as a testimony of God's relationship to His people and His people's relationship to Him. And so everything, all the imagery, be it from the garden or from architecture or from various forms of nature or warfare, all of it has been tagged as different elements in the relationship between God and His people. Two breasts aren't two breasts. They are the Old and the New Testament that we're supposed to delight in. (laughs) Now you get it. I've been wondering. Yeah. But there's nothing in this book that on the surface, suggests we're to read this in an allegorical way. There's nothing that's saying, symbolically, X represents Y. Rather, it just starts out, and it's the songs of Solomon, let, me kiss, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant. There's a man and there's a woman and there's a bunch of cheerleaders called the Daughters of Jerusalem that the girl talks to and she's telling her girlfriends about this man. And 
The man is declaring to his girl, you are beautiful, my sister, my bride. And you see something here that, that looks like it's a, a real man and a real woman. And I think that's what it is. In fact, most interpreters today view this as a song that was to be sung between a man and a woman. But is it one song or is it many songs? So, along with the allegorical interpretation... Oh, before I get there. I just want to say Song of Songs isn't the only place in our Bible that talks like this about a real man and a real woman. Proverbs chapter 5. Drink water from your own cistern, says the the father to his son. As you grow up and God brings a girl into your life, you focus on her. She's the cistern from which you're to... Fill up your cup of love and don't look at anywhere else. Don't look elsewhere. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? No way. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Right in this part of Proverbs, it's all surrounded by don't go after the woman of adultery, the wayward woman. Rather, stay focused on the girl that God has given you to be a treasure, a jewel. Here's Paul. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What is some of this demonic teaching? Don't have sex and don't eat that kind of food. Paul says, don't go there. Because marriage is a gift. Those who forbid marriage are demonic. Those who say you can't eat this kind of food are demonic. God has created all these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good when it's used in the right context. And when it's accompanied by the Word of God and prayer. Lyrical interpretation of this book. Allegorical. Lyrical just means it's a song. That's what it says. In fact, it's lots of songs, and they're all disconnected. They have no necessary relationship with one another, but it's just like an anthology of love poems. My wife still has the letters that I wrote her every single day of the four and a half months that I was in Israel right after we got engaged. I don't have all the letters that she wrote me. Maybe she does. I don't know. She says she does. Okay. So that says something different about us, but but she's here already and I can see. I know she loves me, but she has these letters that I wrote her and back then... I wasn't the best poet, and I talked in very flowery language, and I'm just expressing to her, uh, I called, what did I call you? Um, oh, I called her my blessing, and I told everybody about that. So, but, but in these, so, so are these songs like that? They're just random instances of expressions of love, and, and maybe they would be performed on a stage like this. All these different love songs, but they're, they're known, not necessarily connected. The challenge with that is that we have characters in this story. One's name is Solomon. 
Here are the S, the L, and the M. Solomon. The girl's name is the Shulamite. Here are the S, here are the L, and the M. Some people think it's just Lady Solomon. But you've got Solomon and his girl, the Shulamite. She calls him my love. No, my beloved, my shepherd. She calls, he calls her his love. And then there's the chorus girls. I already called, said, told you about them, the daughters of Jerusalem. And the lady in the song, the soprano, tells her girlfriends about her baritone. And not only that, in the beginning of the story, you seem to see this this hunger rising in their hearts. Then by the time you get to chapter 4, it seems as though you're in the marriage bed. The wedding night is being consummated. And then from chapters 5 to the end of the story, there's these reflections on growing intimacy. And then at the end of the book, you've got the man harnessing his girl in her arms and she's just testifying. It's like they're reflecting on a life lived together and the beauty that God has helped them grow together in love. So the interpretation I'm going to propose is that it's more than music. There's a drama going on here. A drama between a man and a woman, and then there's the chorus girls. And it's a drama that could at one level be portrayed on a stage, but at another level you don't want to go there. I'll I'll show you an image a little bit later that somebody tried to draw of the woman in Song of Songs. Um, It is very tasteful. So... You have this man who's the beloved, the sopranos, the Shulamite, the chorus girls, and they seem to move from love awakened to love enjoyed to love affirmed. There's this movement from moving toward marriage to the wedding celebration to reflections on love at the end of their life. And so we're going to kind of walk through this journey together and see God's beautiful portrait of marriage. I think Song of Songs is a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. On the way things are supposed to be. But this song comes to us in Genesis 3 world. And so there's tensions and there's temptations. Challenges that anyone in a marriage relationship faces. And those who long to be have their own temptations that the book talks about. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Look with me at chapter 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. By Song of Songs, think when you're thinking about what exactly is that saying, this is the way that Hebrew talks about the superlative. The holy of holies means the holiest place among other holy places. The king of kings and lord of lords, meaning that he's the highest of all kings over all other rulers. He's the most valued and most sovereign lord over all other sovereigns. The song of songs... I want to propose, seems to be 
an ideal portrait of love. I'm not certain that it would have even been sung at any one of Solomon's weddings. I'm not certain that he actually grasped fully what he's testifying to in this book. Could he have experienced it when he had so many other loves in his life? But regardless, it seems, it seems to me, most likely, by this title, which is Solomon's, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, that either Solomon wrote this or he had it um, called to be written for him. But it's not just a song of love, it's the song of love, as if it's picturing the ideal. And from this, then, we can get an idea of what love is supposed to look like, at least in certain forms. Let's see. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She, says she. The ESV has gone through and added some titles for the characters. I'm going to just read for a little bit. Why should he kiss me? For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. They look at you, they, they say, he's the man, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. This isn't just a man and a woman, this is a royal wedding. Now the girls sing, we will exult and rejoice in you, we will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you. I am very dark, says the girl, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, she's talking to her friends, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? I want to be where you are, she's saying. Now the man speaks. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck and strings of jewels. The girls sing, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. She joins in. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. The man, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. The girl, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love, my love among the young women. He is a king that makes her a potential queen. And as a meditation on Genesis 1 and 2... This is so significant. God created them in His image. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, subdue. 
have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. That's rulership language. So the Lord created man in his likeness, in his image. He created him. Adam is the very son of God. God is the sovereign over the universe. That makes Adam a royal heir of the kingdom. And then in Genesis 2, he's portrayed as not only royalty, but as a priest who's going to oversee the temple palace of God called the Garden of Eden. And this palace is supposed to be ever-increasing as God's kingdom goes so that they fill the earth, multiply, and subdue it. So the first couple is being portrayed as a royal couple. And that's the image of Scripture. It makes us different from all other creatures. That we bear in ourselves the very image of God. We are royalty, sons and daughters of the King. And every marriage is supposed to put on display the greatness and the value and the worth of God. So as we read Song of Songs, and as we come to a chapter like chapter 3, verse 6, what is this? coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of the merchant. Oh, behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon the king. This is music that is to be sung by everyone. Not just Solomon and his girl, but somehow it shows up in our Bible as a model of what love is supposed to be like. It's the song of songs. So I think what it's doing is it's it's calling all of us as men and women, when God gives you a man or when God gives you your girl, the image is treat her as if she is your queen. Treat him as if he is your king. Revel in him. Be awed by Him. Respect Him, says Paul. And cherish her. Love her as your own body. So, right off the bat, Song of Songs is is lifting up marriage as a royal reality. Echoing images of the Garden of Eden designed to say this is about displaying the worth of God in the context of human marriage. Treat her as if she's your queen. Treat Him as if He's your king. So that Solomon becomes every man in, the, in marriage. And the Shulamite becomes the girl. And we're supposed to be singing it like this and thinking about our bride, thinking about our husband in this way. And this is beautiful in God's sight. Elsewhere, outside of the book of Proverbs, outside of Song of Songs, Usually, statements of beauty are more restrained. So we hear about um, oh, Abigail. Abigail, who's the wife of the bad guy. Um, anybody help me? What is it? Nabal? Is it Na- Nabal? 
Okay, so Abigail's the wife of Nabal, and Nabal does some bad things to David. So David wants to kill him, and Abigail, the wife, comes up and says, My husband's a fool, but please don't kill him. And all it says is, 1 Samuel 25, 3, Abigail was beautiful. That's it. 1 Samuel 16, 12, David was ruddy and handsome. None of this descriptions like this. It's, it's restrained the discussions of physical beauty. Proverbs 31 tells us physical beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. 1 Timothy, Peter say the woman's greatest focus should be on inward beauty. And then, over and over and over again, improper sexual con- relations are condemned. And then we get Song of Songs. If all we had was the brief statements that we see elsewhere about marital intimacy, we'll look at some of them, I, don't th- I think there would be an imbalance. That there is something important about this one flesh relationship and the way that it's displayed in the marriage bed that needs an entire book to unpack in the context of poetry i've given this example it's a very different poetry has its own tools its own gift if you would say things not in poetry but in the way that they seem kind of in real real depictions uh, i've said this before but If I were to kiss my wife and I say, wow, that was like kissing a very warm piece of liver. (laughs) I've never kissed a piece of liver, but the the texture, if it seemed like that, it might be a real statement, but there's no real uh, fire there, right? (laughs) But if I say something like, kissing you is like, is like a field of pink blossoms at spring. That does something else. It's it's emotive. It, It puts an image in your mind. And Song of Songs talks about love in that way. Songs works with a handful of other passages to highlight how desire for the opposite sex and sexual arousal are good gifts from God. Always understood in a certain context. From the beginning, this kind of sexual desire and love is understood in Song of Songs to only be experienced in the context of marriage. This book, I think, is designed to help guide enjoyment of healthy physical love. We see small hints elsewhere. Here's Paul. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife should give hers to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is not about taking. It's about giving and receiving. That's what love is. Paul tells us, 
some about that. Here's the writer to the Hebrews. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Let's consider, so that I'm saying there's a, there's a place for this book in our Bibles. And I don't want us to ignore it. But we want to approach it the right way. So I'm walking through the book of Proverbs with my kids, and I got to Proverbs 5. And we talked about it. I talked about it with my 5 to 15-year-olds differently than I will talk about it to my son gearing up to go to college. But we walked through it and we celebrated the beauty. This kind of love is for moms and dads to enjoy together, and it's a good thing. And the desires that you feel as you look across the room at that boy you've never talked to, but you think he's really cute, those are God-given, and we can celebrate them. But we need to be patient. Let's consider how to get our hands around this one flesh imagery that's portrayed Kisses are with the mouth. This isn't just, you know, the, um, what is the word? Uh, the kiss of love. I forget how Paul talks about it. Um, this isn't a peck. This is the holy kiss. That's what I was thinking of. Yes, thank you. Um, this is something more substantive. And it, it creates something in the soul that, that, brings fire, and God gave that. In chapter 1, lost my place, chapter 1, verse 2, this, this desire, this arousal is actually called love. The desires that are awakening with respect to physical hunger are called love. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And that's how God's he's willing to talk about it that way. This is part of the expression, part of the gift that he's given a man and a woman in the context of marriage to see yourselves, see your delight in one another persevere. The climax of sexual union is described by the metaphor of eating fruit from a luscious God-given garden. This is God's right order. I am my beloved, beloved's, and his desire is for me. And God says, Amen. That's how it should be. There's a whole range of poetic images that are drawn from. If you like the boundary waters, you can find those images here. If you like taking your dates downtown, you can find those images here too. The skyscraper and the uh, leafy tree. Look at chapter 2 with me. Verse 3. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. There is a protection image here. 
I don't know how far to take all the images, and I'm cautious to take them too far, to try to identify what everything is supposed to mean within the context of the marriage bed. It's undefiled as long as it's there, and it's about giving and receiving and not about taking. It's not about objectifying, but about relishing. Then there's beauty there. But there's something here that there's a protection. And then in 2 verse 6, His left hand is under my head. His right, by His right hand, He embraces me. She feels secure in His arms. That's how it's supposed to be. Throughout this book, as I'm looking at what do I learn about the woman and what do I learn about the man, she has something that I'm not seeing in the man as much. This, this longing, this urge for him to be near her. And when he's gone, she's actually freaking out. She has two dreams that he has left her. And she's awakened in the night. And at the core, she's shaken up because it's so scary to her. It hurts her that he is away on his business trip. She just likes when he's near. And that's a good thing. She talks to her friends about him in very tasteful ways. I already read chapter 3 when she portrays the carriage of Solomon coming in, I think, for his wedding day. And he's surrounded by 60 men in, with swords on their belts. And he's the king. And she's like, that's my man. That's him. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, turn your eyes. There he is. Chapter 5, 10 through 16. Look with me there. My beloved, she says to her friends, is radiant, is ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. She's talking to her friends, and then she comes to shock and awe. His arms, this is shock and this is awe. His, his arms are, are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns. Now all you girls are saying of your husbands, you know, maybe, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago this was him, but, but somehow you're supposed to be dreaming, thinking. This is, I, I remember those affections. And I want them to be aroused. And I want to be able to talk to my girlfriends. Notice, this is very tasteful. This isn't, this isn't talking about sexual intimacy to her girlfriends. She never does that. Nor does he. We're going to see. But she does talk about her man. And when she does, she's drawing attention to his greatness, how much she reveres him. She's doing it in public. She's talking to her girlfriends about her man. And this seems to me to be pointing to exactly what Paul and Peter stress about wives, respect your husbands. Or how about Proverbs 31, as the girl is engaged in all of her labors, In the domestic sphere, her husband is respected at the city gate where he sits among the leaders of the land. And he has that because his girl is for him. It's very different when we look at the man. Never does the man 
in this book talk to any of his friends about his girl? And I find this very instructive. Because I don't know how much girls talk about their guy to their friends. But I do hear, especially during my seasons, uh, during my time at Northwestern, it's very easy for young men to begin to talk about girls as if they're objects. Objects that were conquered. The man never does this. Instead, when he talks about the girl's body, he's talking to her and only her. He's expressing something that she longs to hear, that she is a treasure to him, that she matters to him, that I love you. Oh sure, there's that 20% that I've just got to look over. You, whatever it may be, clean out your ears with your Q-tips and leave the dirty Q-tips on the counter. And I hate that. He's not thinking about that part. He's just reveling in her beauty. He's, he's saying, you are the one that I care for. You are the one that I'm committed to. And he's not exploiting her to his friends. Chapter 6. Four through seven. You are beautiful as Tirza, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem. He's going to locations that were renowned for their beauty. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they, they just overwhelm me. Stop looking at me. I mean, I'm just getting fired up. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like flocks of ewes that have come up from their washing, all of them bear twins. Not one, of, not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. They're just rosy. Last year I was given a picture that an artist drew trying to depict the woman as the husband describes her in this book. So let me, read, let me read the text and, and let you picture this really great girl. How beautiful you are, my beloved. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. <laughs> Forty pounds, heap of wheat. No, I mean, he's, so this is not what we're to be picturing, and, and, it's, and it's hard for you and I Here in the West, he's drawing on the images of the Middle East, of the Mediterranean climate, the entire land of Canaan, and we just can't relate. And that makes this a difficult book, not only to read and get our hands around, to interpret. But I think we can get the gist of it. It's not this. <laughs> it's that he's... he's Creating likenings. 
likenings from memories past when he and her enjoyed certain places, when they heard certain sounds, when they tasted certain things, and they together can relate to his imagery. It's awakening nice thoughts, not bad ones. When she hears that her teeth are like a flock of goats, each one with its twin, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And so it's, it's telling to me as a husband, and I don't do it enough, to just verbally express my care for my girl, who's a gift of God. The text at times does propose that she's naked. But this is not the song that he sung to a girl, Solomon. This is the Song of Songs, which is supposed to be adopted by every couple in Israel to remind them of what I'm supposed to have with my girl. And what I have with my girl as it comes out of this book, or what I have with my man as it comes out of this book, is between me and him in a very unique and distinct way. And it's supposed to be applied within the context of my marriage. And I'm not supposed to touch your application in your marriage. But he describes her graceful legs, her waist and her navel, her breasts. He's looking at her and he's cherishing her. He sees her. This isn't in the dark. And it's beautiful. They were naked and they were unashamed. The man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And this is part of what is to be celebrated in the context of the home. His words are given to the girl as affirmation and love and there's no allowance in the song for men to exploit their wives in the presence of others or to objectify their wives as a city conquered rather than as a jewel treasured. That's what I see when I see this book. There's something beautiful here that's to move us as men to cherish our wives and it's to move you as ladies to respect your husbands in public. It's part of what's to be celebrated, kindling in the fire of love. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. The message of this book All the garden imagery, the man, the woman, the kingship, the princess ship, all of it seems to me to be calling us back to Genesis 1 and 2. Fill the earth, multiply. That's part of this book. Celebrate what brings it about. Sexuality in marriage is the visual, symbolic oath sign. The oath was made at the altar. I will love you as I love my own body till death do us part for richer, for poorer, through sickness and in health. And what sexual intimacy is designed to do, it seems, is to be a reminder of this love, this this giving and this receiving, never taking. And that every time that sexual intercourse is enjoyed, every time that the hand goes into the other person's hand, every time that you sit next to them and read a book, those are gifts of God to 
remind us of the intimacy that we're supposed to share. And all the while, this is where we're headed, it's screaming, to what end? To what end? While read in light of Genesis 1 and 2, there's clear evidence in this book that she and he are not living in Genesis 1 and 2. That's where they're longing to be. That's where they're trying to remind themselves, this is who we're supposed to be. But they're living on the other side of the curse where relationships are warped and where temptation is real and where challenge and hurt and loss really happens. So Song of Songs is not separated from your and my world when it comes to relationships. This is what we read about. The girl is terrified of losing her man. Chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night I sought him with whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. And that grieves her. She longs to be able to publicly demonstrate her love, but social convention doesn't appear to be allowing it. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. But I look and I can't do that. I can't just go up to you and embrace you, but I wish that I could. I think that's what it's saying. Her world is one in which love can be sought too quickly and in the wrong places. And here's where we begin to see the structure of the book that I pointed at the beginning. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. I just want to walk through these refrains. Chapter 2, 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Don't be too quick. Chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then chapter 8, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There is a temptation that this woman who is now enjoying marital love as she's as it was intended to be, she's calling all of her single girlfriends and saying, don't go too fast. Don't try to jump in before it's time. Suggesting there's a temptation to do so, which we all know is so apparent. Because, I mean, the desire begins to rise at such a young age, and it's a God-given desire that is supposed to, in those young ages, supposed to nurture be, be a tool of God to nurture greater dependence on God. Lord, hold me, help me. And then as you move into adulthood, if God continues in your sing, if you continue in your singleness, and that's where God has placed you, that, that it would be an instrument of God to say, not now, God, not now. I want to hear what she's saying. Because I want, I want the fire to be stoked in full force. And I don't want to have given my flame elsewhere. Look at chapter 8, 6, and 7. I think this captures the main thrust of the book. Here it is. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Get it right up next to your, I guess it would be over here, or over here, whichever side. Get me right up next to your heart. Make it strong and unmovable. 
For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. It flash, its flashes are flashes of fire. And then the only place in the book where God's name shows up, and it actually only shows up as Yah, not as Yahweh. It just says the fire of Yah. But I think that it's talking about the Lord. And that's how it describes love. It's the fire of the Lord. Like the fire that led Israel through the wilderness is now burning inside of me with all that glory and potential of putting on display His greatness. The fire of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. True love allows for no intruders. It's as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. True love is constant, unable to be overcome. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. True love is not a commodity to be purchased or traded. This is a gift from God. We can't force it. It's going to take breaking of my own selfishness. At every stage of growth in my marriage, the Lord has moved me into a season of self-destruction. So we get married, and I remember so vividly how much my marriage to Teresa was showing me how selfish I was. Identifying my own fleshliness, and I didn't like it. But what was happening is, The fires of love were beginning to boil. And what was rising to the surface was dross and it needed to be cleared away. And then we had children. And again, there's this challenge of selfishness. This is about me. This is about me. No, it's not about me. I'm supposed to be serving my wife and loving my kids. And more ugliness comes to the soul all because of love. The fire of God, that's how it describes it. We don't want to arouse it or awaken it too soon. The very flame of the Lord, love is God wrought. It's a gift. May we not run from it. What God has brought together, may no man put asunder. But is that it? Is this just a book about the love between a man and a woman? And from the very earliest chapters, we can see the love between a man and a woman, the fire of God, is never just about the man and the woman. There's a unique distinctiveness about marriage putting God on display. Imagers of God, a man and a woman, so that when two imagers equal in their capacity to display the greatness and worth and beauty of God come together, all of a sudden there's something, a higher capacity, a distinct capacity. It's like the light of God, which is shining in each individual as singles, comes together and it gets all the more powerful. A distinct ability to display the greatness of God. And so I step back and I say, is this book at all about that? Is marriage itself being portrayed as a parable within Song of Songs? 
Not every feature of the woman's body or of the man's body serving as an allegory. I'm not, that's not where I'm going. But I'm saying, is this relationship, this beauty, this intimacy within this book designed to heighten hope for something more? And I think it is. As I already said, all the way back from the beginning stages of the Pentateuch, God has portrayed His relationship with His people as a marriage. And we come to Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant text. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that they broke, those who I brought out of Egypt. Then what does it say? Even though I was a husband to them. I was their husband and they rejected me. But I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And when we read the Song of Songs, in light of the whole flow of the story, what are they hoping in? Well, back there in the narrative of Kings, when the story ended, and then we moved into the commentary section, the story ended with Israel in exile, separated from their love, separated from their God. They were no longer living in His home called the Promised Land. His presence was no longer near them because they had rejected their their lover. They had rejected their king. But all the while, there's this hope that one day He will return and bring His bride back. Who can hope in that day? Certainly not those who have run from God. Certainly not those who treat marriage as if it's something that can be thrown away. Who treat relationship as if it doesn't matter. The only ones who can hope in God are those who recognize the weightiness of marriage. Who recognize that it is a parable always to the greater one. Now I want to draw attention to a single passage. And to do so, I'm going to... uh, Hop over some slides. Here it is. Psalm 45. It's called, you know, in the titles that are given to Psalms, it's called a love song. But when we get inside of Psalm 45, there's, it's just some intriguing parallels. It's a story, it's a love song between the king and his bride. But it seems to me that it was being read prophetically. Let's look at the text. And where I want to start is actually in verse 13, so you can see the parallel with our passage. Here's verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. So the king is talking about his girl. And they're getting ready for their wedding. All glorious is the princess in her chamber. With robes interwoven with gold, in many colored robes, she has led the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the king talking about to his bride. And it sounds very much like the context of Song of Songs. But when we see the beginning of the psalm, there are some signals that there's more going on than a king and his bride. Look at the top. 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Their God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Notice there's no dot, dot, dot between those sentences. Look at them again. Look at the, sentence, the second sentence. Their God... Is it therefore... Okay, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Who's he talking to? In the verse just before it, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever. That's the you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter. Therefore, God, your God. So, the God in verse 7, Therefore, God, your God... The your is named God in the previous verse. The throne is not the throne of God in heaven. The throne is the throne of God on earth. Can you see that? Your throne, O God, is forever. Replace that with David and it'll make sense. Your throne, O David, is forever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, David, your God, your David, your God. But the king in verse 6 is being referred to as God. And in Hebrews chapter 1, it says... Let me tell you about the Son of God. And it quotes verses 6 and 7 as a reference to the Messiah. Which suggests to me that Psalm 45 was already written as a prophetic psalm. Pointing ahead to the day when the Messiah would rise and He would be joined to His bride. But we know Jesus never had a wife. Which suggests that already in the days of David, in the days of Solomon, they're singing love music messianically. They're singing, so so it sets the, the sage for us to read Song of Songs, not only as a call to men and women who are married to treat treat their husband as the king and their bride as the queen to enter into this sacrificial servant love experience that is celebrated in the context of marriage, but that already Israel's kingship was seen as a pointer, a hope to the ultimate day when the king would rise. And that king would have a bride, and that bride is the church. That you and I read Song of Songs not as the allegory in the way that everybody else did, but as a parable. It's real human marriage, but it's a parable for something greater. And all of the writings are about hope. Hope for that day when the King will come. Hope for those worshiping and waiting on God. Hope for those trusting in God, fearing in God, even when He takes everything away. Hope for those who are seeking to train their children in godliness. Hope for those who are celebrating marriage in the context, celebrating sexual intimacy in the context of marriage and doing so as a reminder 
of the ultimate intimacy that will come for those who are faithful. The Song of Songs is a book worth celebrating. And it's operating, it appears to me, on two levels. Nurturing a man's relationship with his girl and a girl's relationship with her man, giving us a lens for understanding how to, in in a context that is so anti-God when it comes to sexuality, giving us a lens for how to talk about it purely, how to celebrate it in a God-honoring way. That's one side. And then the other side is to say, as a husband and as a wife, this type of intimacy is also designed to awaken desire for a day beyond our own. A day when the great King of the universe will return and we as His bride will be joined to Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, never to be separated, ever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for a small book like this. How much I as a husband, and I'm sure many of these husbands need to be reminded to cherish our girls verbally. How many of these Wives or those who long to be need reminders of how to cherish our men verbally. And then, Lord, we praise you that you are the ultimate groom who never fails, who is faithful to those married and to those single, unswerving in your commitment, ever true in your love. We long for the day when you will return. For your glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.com. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.